Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, Wednesday, May the, not May, I have May on the mind now, uh, October the 26th, twenty. 22. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, the most networked or connected place on earth, for better or worse. One of the things I've learned from doing this show is that everything seems to be connected. At the beginning of the week, uh, particularly, of course, in California, uh, beginning of the week, I did a show with the British writer or the British New Zealand writer, Katie Hickman, on what she calls the brave-hearted women who settled the American West. It's a wonderful book, beautifully written. She's a novelist by heart rather than a formal historian. And her book is just out this week, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. And as one would expect in this kind of book, she focuses on African-American women, indigenous women, white women, Hispanic women. Um, and we also talked uh, in part about Chinese women who came uh, to California during the gold rush in, in the middle of the 19th century. Um, she reports, at least according to the Los Angeles Times, that according to an 1870 uh, a census, however reliable that is, 72% uh, of female Chinese immigrants were sex workers. And again, I, I'm just quoting something from the Los Angeles Times. It's an intriguing idea, and it introduces some stereotypical, I think, views on what my guest today, Nai, uh, May uh, Nai, calls the China question, uh, the gold rushes, Chinese migration and global politics, uh, which she focuses on, a, a book about the 19th century. She's a professor of history, very distinguished professor of history at Columbia University, uh, and unfortunately, her video isn't working, so we're just going to be able to listen to May. Uh, May, welcome. Uh, what would be your response to, to that um, observation in uh, the Los Angeles Times about the preponderance of sex workers amongst Chinese female immigrants in the middle of the 19th century? Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. And I'm sorry about the video malfunction. Well, I think the question of Chinese women and sex work is a complicated one. On the one hand, in, in the early days of the gold rush, when nearly all gold seekers were men traveling alone and working in frontier-like conditions, most women on the gold fields were sex workers or entertainers or barmaids uh, and the like. And it's only after some years that merchants and businessmen uh, settle down. They bring wives from back east and they have families. And the proportion of women who are sex workers or you know, otherwise uh, working in bars and whatnot um, decreases. In the, so in a sense, you know, the, the preponderance of Chinese women as sex workers is not really unusual on the gold fields in the early days of the gold rush. On the other hand, um, 
the the preponderance of men uh, in Chinese uh, gold mining communities and and elsewhere uh, continues to be very high, and the Chinese are much slower to bring women over and to start families, and and so there still remains a fairly large proportion of women who are sex workers. But women do come as wives of merchants, the wives of workers. Um, the Chinese fishermen who worked at uh, uh, Montgomery, I'm sorry, worked in Monterey, California, were well known for having wives who worked side by side with them. Um, so there were, there were women in a range of occupations. But unfortunately, I think the presence of women as prostitutes in Chinatown communities gave rise to a racialized stereotype that all women, all Oriental women, were um, prostitutes. And this was related to the rise of stereotypes of Chinese men being coolies, right? That, that both men and women were unfree persons, right? The, the sex workers being allegedly bound by their brothel keepers or procurers. And so what is a more complicated historical um, experience becomes uh, a racial stereotype that casts all women as being, um, you know, both uh, desirable but also depraved. May Azul. Very distinguished historians. You are a slayer of myths. That's what the best historians do. And my understanding, uh, you've, you've suggested this in a number of interviews and in the book, that one of the purposes of writing The China Question was to slay, quote unquote, the coolie myth. Tell me about the coolie myth, what it is, and why it was so important to write this book in terms of slaying this myth. Yeah, that is the central concern, or it was my central motivation in writing this book. Um, during the gold rushes in, in California, um, the idea became uh, prominent in California politics that the Chinese were unfree workers, that they were like slaves. And they were called coolies, which is a reference to Chinese indentured workers who were recruited to work uh, in the Caribbean plantation colonies. And I see you put up on the screen um, Indian coolie workers who were recruited. Right. That was a colonial term. I, I assume it was, yes, it's if not invented by the British, certainly peddled by the British. Right. It, it has its origins in Tamil, and it, it circulates into the colonial port cities, and it's a, it's a neologism. You know, it's not, it's not a word in Chinese. Um, and it, and it, it originally referred to of just a very lowly worker, you know, a porter or a servant. And then it became attached to the trade and indentured labor that was sent to the plantation colonies after the abolition of slavery. And in California, the Chinese gold seekers were actually independent prospectors. They were no different than the Europeans who came, you know, all the gold, you know, practically all the gold seekers were independent in that sense. They weren't contracted by anybody else. So they were, um, so to speak, upwardly mobile. It would have required significant resources to get from China to California in the middle of the 19th century. 
Right. Well, you know, they used either family funds or they borrowed money. Um, a lot of Europeans borrowed money also. I mean, transoceanic migration was uh, greased by credit, whether it's the Atlantic or the Pacific. So the Chinese coming on credit was really no different than the Europeans. But somehow coming on credit um, or working in, in groups even was seen as a form of servitude. And this was, I, I, I consider it to be a kind of racial shorthand that compared the Chinese to African-American slaves in the South. So do you see this as a as a cause or a consequence of, of white racism to Chinese migrants in the middle of the 19th century or both? I think it's both, you know, it's absolutely both. One supports the other. Um, it's used uh, in, in, for partisan reasons, right? The, the coolie, the, the accusation that the Chinese were coolies and therefore should be excluded from the United States was first raised by the first governor of California, John Bigler, who was running for re-election. He was in a tight race. He needed votes. And he put out this alarm that the Chinese coolies were flooding the state and they were a threat to free labor. And this appealed to um, white miners who were actually themselves facing a more um, precarious situation because you know, the gold, the easy gold gets picked up really quickly and then it's harder and harder to make a living as a gold miner. And you also have the entrance of highly capitalized gold mining companies coming into the scene. So you have a, a section of the workforce that is aggrieved. And then you have a theory of difference that's offered to explain their, their situation and then is weaponized by politicians. So in, in a sense, this is a classic nativist playbook where you, you know, you have people who are upset about something and you blame another, another group and then you use it to win elections, right? We see this. Right. You, may, you had a nice piece in, the, um, in Lit Hub where this is also broadcast on the gold rush. You note that the rush really began, the fever began uh, after Polk confirmed reports, the president at the time confirmed reports in December. What were the numbers of uh, Chinese um, migrants to California during the gold rush? How many came and, and what percentage of um, uh, did that make them in, in the gold rush community? Maybe uh, 20 to 50,000 in the first decade, you know. Um, oh, significant numbers. Yeah, but there's, you know, like almost half a million others and you know it's it's in some well i would say this i think that the distribution is scattered right in some in some gold districts chinese were maybe a quarter of the gold mining population but they're not a quarter of the population as a whole maybe they're less than 10 percent and they're not um they're not 25 percent of the gold mining population overall it's just in certain districts so they um they are singled out um and you know, I think that to call them coolies is to say it actually is not really even a question of gold mining. It's a question of do, do these people have the capacity to become uh, members of our community? Do they have the capacity to be democratic 
citizens? That was the question, right? The fact that they took gold out of the earth was uh, the complaint, right? That they would take the gold out of the earth and send it back to China. Never mind that, you know, other nationalities took the gold back to their countries. So there's, there's clearly a double standard in many of the criticisms that are leveled at the Chinese are, are think practices that are um, ubiquitous among the gold mining population. Your, your book focuses not just on California, but uh, on the gold rushes, 19th century gold rushes in Australia and South Africa. Did you find in your book a, a similar Chinese question, a, a similar racism and contempt for workers from China, a similar uh, discourse of, of coolies? Yeah, you know, that's the most, that was, I think, my first aha moment during my research. The coolie question was so ubiquitous in California. When I went to Australia and looked at the archives, I was really surprised that nobody called them coolies or slaves. I mean, because they weren't, right? I mean, they weren't in California either, but somehow you could use this as a racial shorthand to disparage them. And so why, why, why wasn't this adopted in Australia? Well, it wouldn't have had the same purchase because the history of unfreedom in Australia is not African slavery. It's convict transportation, right? It's poor, poor English and Irish convicts who are sent to Australia. So when Australia debates free labor versus unfree labor, they're not thinking about slaves or Chinese coolies, they're thinking about convicts. So there is, um, there is, there is uh, criticism or, or kind of racism against the Chinese in Australia, but it's much more inchoate. It doesn't have a theory the way uh, theory of coolieism develops in California. The main complaints are that they are heathens, you know, they're not Christians. Um, and uh, I think tellingly, they are worried that they are so close to China that it's a question of, of proximity. You know, they, they say we are, we, are the, we are but a small handful of white men and women at the far edges of the British Empire in Asia. And we are afraid of being overrun by the Chinese, right? So there's, um, there's a famous cartoon of um, uh, a, a, an English or, or an Australia, British Australian lad on a raft um, and the raft is called Australia and it's on this uh, choppy ocean waters and there is a Chinese in the water, a caricature of a Chinese man trying to climb onto the raft, right? That's their concern. So, but the Australians do adopt a Cooley theory later, you know, in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, and it comes out of the cities. It doesn't come out of the gold fields. It comes out of the cities. And it's much more of a political project that they actually they import from California, from the California. Do you think that this is a, a, I know you didn't study the whole world, but is this a universal phenomenon, this way of putting down races, particularly in the 19th century? Had it been reversed, had it been white Europeans showing up in China for an equivalent gold rush, do you think a similar thing might have happened? What did you find in South Africa, for example, which is a uh, different from 
Australia and California, but also has obviously some stuff in common. Well, I think it is a phenomenon of human migration that when people from, <coughs> excuse me, people from point A show up at point B, the people who are already at point B might look askance at them. And depending on the condition of their, of their society and what the resources are like, they may or may not feel like sharing it with the newcomers. I think that, and, and often this becomes, you know, articulated through a kind of othering of, of the newcomers. So I think that's fairly common. But the idea that a, that a, a whole group of people, the Chinese, are not just indentured workers, but the coolie theory was that they were a coolie race. Mm. Yeah something about being Chinese. It's not what job you have or what is your, the status of your work, right? It's not a status question or occupational question if you have a contract or don't have a contract. It becomes a question of a racial condition that the Chinese is a coolie race, meaning that they are subservient, they have no individuality, they have no will, you know, how just, much do you think this was bound up in sort of broader racial Darwinist theories in the middle of the 19th century, which obviously eventually metastasized into fascism and Nazism, and of course justified European colonialism in Africa and Asia? Right. It's definitely part of um, the rise of, uh, well, I guess you could call it scientific racism or eugenics, but, uh, but this coolie. Cooley theories weren't even didn't even pretend to be scientific, you know. It was just a kind of ethnocultural. Were there intellectuals peddling some of this, trying to make it more respectable? White intellectuals, as they're doing now, perhaps in post-Trump America. Well, in the early um, yes, there were, uh, especially in the early twentieth century, um, as part of a, a eugenics and nativist movement, there are, I don't know if you would call them intellectuals, there are pundits and writers. Um, wannabe intellectuals. Wannabe intellectuals. Pseudo intellectuals, Pseudo fake intellectuals. Um, so you can tell by the titles of their books, right? One of the best sellers in America in 1916 was written by a eugenicist named Madison Grant. And the title was The Passing of a Great Race. Mm. About how uh, he was mostly concerned with immigrants from, you know, Italians and Jews wiping out the Nordics in America, but he would have included the Chinese in that danger, right? Um, uh, so this is about how you know poorer immigrants will have more children than native-born whites, and therefore you know that they will they will conquer through demographics. May. Um... We've done a number of shows on contemporary China, did a couple of shows on Xi Jinping, and one of them from a couple of his biographers, German journalists, and they really stressed the fact that Xi Jinping, very aware of 19th century China being, quote unquote, the century of humiliation. China wasn't formally colonized by the West, but I wonder how this played out in, in, in your book, in the China question, in terms of Chinese migration to these 19th century gold rushes. Uh, were 
the Chinese migrants themselves aware of this century of humiliation? Was it their way of perhaps making it less humiliating? And was the take on the Chinese by the Western uh, intellectuals and policymakers, was it different because China hadn't been formally colonized by the West? That is one of the big points I, I try to um, make in, in my book. Because China was not formally colonized, the tactics of colonization had to be more, uh, you know, they had to be different. So if you, if you look at India, right, India, which is colonized by Britain, the British control the mobility of India's people, right? And they can actually direct, you know, workers or coolies from India to Guyana. You know, I mean, they have a whole, they have a lock on, on who can go where, right? Um, and in China, that's not the case, right? Um, they don't control the government. Uh, they don't control mobility. Uh, so part of, contain, part of controlling and containing China is the effort to contain its people, its mobility, because what the gold rushes unleash is not just Chinese going to the, the gold fields, but then they come and they do all kinds of other things. They, they set up import-export companies, they manufacture things, they get involved in farming. You know, well, they sound very, uh, you know, and as, as, as Americans like to say, as American as apple pie in their entrepreneurialism. Right, exactly. And so, um, and the Americans don't want to share. You know, it's all about they, that they don't want to share. And especially in the West, they think the West is, you know, really God's gift to white civilization. And so I think the exclusion laws that are eventually passed in the United States and the British settler colonies, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, um, the exclusion policies are of a piece with the unequal treaties, right? The unequal treaties is what gave the Europeans, mm. Americans, free access to China, its market. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure we could call them treaties. That's a, a euphemism, right? Right. Well, yeah, they forced them to sign. You know, after the Opium Wars, they had these uh, so-called treaties, right, where they, they rested more and more rights to go into China both businessmen and missionaries had access to the interior, which they did not have previous to the opium wars. May, you, you presented uh, a fairly unified response to the Chinese migrants in, in California in the gold rush. We've done a number of shows on, on uh, for example, the, the different response to African-Americans in the Second World War. And my guest on the show and other historians suggested that Jewish Americans, for example, had a quite different attitude to black soldiers as non-Jewish white um, Americans. Were there different kinds of relations and responses to the Chinese question from the indigenous community, the Hispanic community, the Jewish community, or was it everybody taking the same line and, and buying this uh, coolie myth? That's really important, I think, for us to understand that it was not a monolith, you know, there were, uh, even in the gold fields during the height of the gold rush, when there was a lot of conflict between, uh, among miners of all different backgrounds, you know, but including the Chinese, 
but, but it wasn't all fighting all the time. You know, it's not all violence all the time. There are Chinese and whites who work next to each other, you know, in the rivers or the, or the you know, um, the, the placers. Um, and uh, they traded with each other. You know, there were Chinese merchants uh, on the gold fields, and they, they catered to both Chinese and white and other, you know, other customers. So I think it is important to, to know that it's not all fighting all the time among everybody, right? That's one thing. Then when it becomes a that's not a day-to-day question, right? What is it like to work out in gold mining? And, um, and then when you get to politics, I think the political uh, trend uh, towards of, of anti-Chinese politics becomes very, very strong in California. It becomes almost irresistible. It sweeps the state. Um, and it's, it's pushed first by the Democrats. Um, the Republicans uh, come over. The Republicans at first were um, more interested in protecting their business interests in the China trade. Um, but after the Transcontinental Railroad is built and then more goods are available, in California from the East Coast, right, and California's uh, market is not as dependent on Pacific trade, right, the Republicans start to move over. And it's, it's, it's like today, you know, not everybody is against immigrants, but it's really hard to be a politician and be for the immigrants, right? It's, it's a third rail in, in politics. But you had groups like, um, especially the missionaries, uh, who are very active in Chinatown communities, they advocated on behalf of the Chinese. Um, and there are others. There are others who are more liberal-minded um, who advocated for the Chinese. But anti-Chinese politics at, at the state level and then at the national level is kind of like a steamroller. Um, and I should add, the Chinese advocated for themselves. You know, they wrote pamphlets, they gave talks, you know, they're some very educated men among the Chinese communities who spoke for their people. Um, many of them were bilingual. They wrote in English. They were educated. Um, but ultimately, the political question um, in terms of uh, the work that racism did in California, um, as I said, was nearly irresistible. May, uh, and this particular Californian question, but I guess it could apply to Australia and South Africa as well. What was the Chinese take on the astonishing hypocrisy of a country which on the one hand spoke about freedom and independence and on the other hand uh, was a country in which there was institutionalized slavery pre-Civil War America? I know it's probably hard to generalize on a single take on these thousands of migrants, but in your research, what have you found about uh, the impression of uh, of America on these Chinese uh, uh, migrants? Well, we don't have much in the archive of um, things written by ordinary Chinese immigrants or minors, but we do have the writings of educated Chinese who, who published, you know, uh, newspaper editorials or wrote letters to politicians 
um, or who publish pamphlets. And so we, we know what they say. And they basically say, um, they're very careful, right? Some of them do criticize the hypocrisy of, of the United States, especially in its um, slave states. And they, they kind of point out, you know, you wish to put us in that group along with the people that you deny freedom to, along with the slaves. Um, but we are not slaves. So it's a little tricky, right? Because they're not really, they're not really anti-slavery in the in sense that we might want them to be, but they're not, you know, that they're saying we're not, we're not enslaved people. Um, and they also, so while they do point out the hypocrisy, they're more prone to say, this is supposed to be the land of democracy. This is supposed to be the land where people are free. So they don't, they don't criticize too overtly because I think they're trying to appeal to a white audience. I think they probably have a much more um, serious critique, but in their published writings, they appeal to the principles of the United States. As was there any, and I know this is a hard question for you to answer too, was there any reverse racism? looking down on white people or attitudes to African-Americans amongst these migrants, do you think, in your experience, in, in, in your research? I don't see, I don't see anything really overt. You know, I mean, among the educated Chinese, they think they have the longest tradition of civilization and scholarly, scholarly knowledge. So they have a very high opinion of themselves. Um, but they don't in their, um, you know, in their writings, they don't, they don't lord it over. <laughs> the we writing. didn't buy into these uh, pseudo-scientific eugenicist theories. Uh, the, the book has done brilliantly. Congratulations, May. It, it won the 2022 Bancroft Prize. It was shortlisted for the 2022 Kundal History Prize, finalist for the LA Times Book Prize. So it's more than just uh, a history of the gold rush in in uh, Chinese migration and gold rush in South Africa, California, and Australia. It's also a book about the, the development of, of what one might think of as a, as a 19th century globalized migration system. Explain how that came about and how you began to kind of, so to speak, given it's a book about gold rushes, excavate that system in, in your work in the book. Well, the system that I'm concerned about, which is both about migration, but also the, the world that all this gold helped contribute to was, was the um, really rapid you know, uh, development of global capitalism, the ascent of Great Britain and the United States as world economic hegemons. And in that context, you know, gold plays a role, of course, because it's through their, uh, their monopoly of the world's gold supplies and their, um, their financial and economic might that they can wield an international monetary standard based on gold, right? So that, that is more or less what happens by 1870s, right? When Germany goes off the bimetal, goes off the silver and France dollars. So international trade then becomes something that is, is done mostly in, in by gold standard. And that's a tremendous form of power that has to do with 
uh, credit, colonialism, investments, etc. And the migration that fits into that is that, that along with this um, rise of global finance and investment is also, of course, as we know, industrialization um, and urbanization, which is a voracious you know, eater of immigrant labor. And so you have this huge um, uh, movement of people around the world, and they go from the countryside to the city, whether it's from the countryside in the Austro-Hungarian Empire to a, a German city, or from the German countryside to America, right? I mean, or from southern China village to a Chinese city, or from China to the United States, right? So people are moving off of agricultural subsistence uh, into wage labor, semi-wage labor, and and the big draw is is the industrializing centers of the world economy, right? Um, and so what happens with the Chinese question is a kind of, I, I, I think of it as a kind of resorting of migration, right? Where by the 19th century, migration patterns become fairly distinctive and set, right? You have people from Italy go to the United States and Argentina, right? Um, people from Ireland go to the United States, but they also go to Australia uh, and Canada. Um, and Chinese who used to go to the West, right, to the United States or Australia, are no longer allowed to do that. So they increasingly go to Southeast Asia or North Asia to Manchuria. So you have a kind of um, sorting of migration streams that are not really dictated directly by governments or, or by businesses, but are respond, they respond to these changes in the world economy. And then once people start going to a certain place, you know, it reproduces itself, right? Because but it, it's, it's, it's capitalism that's driving all this rather than, I mean, I guess it's a kind of racialized capitalism. Marx, of course, famously wrote on the Jewish question. I'm not sure if he wrote anything about the Chinese question, but, but he understood this. There were others in the 19th century that understood what was going on, that there were these profound structural shifts in the world economy and in how we lived and in social class and political power and so on and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do, I mean, I'm not the first person. No, 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 I don't mean it in that sense. I don't mean to, I don't mean to suggest that you're not the first person to say it, but it, but you're saying it in a very interesting and original way. I mean, well, right. I mean, what I—I I mean, I'm not the first person to write about Chinese migration or the Chinese exclusion laws, but I think I am contributing a new angle on this history by connecting it or by situating it in this larger context of global capitalism. I think that is something that people have not examined right. very closely. You have a—you have an unusual history. You came to the profession of the history profession quite late. Remarkable history, really, and in yeah. a way, it kind of reflects well, I guess, on. America or academia that you were able to invent and then reinvent yourself. 
you spent a long time on this book, I think almost 10 years. What do all these prizes mean to you? I, I'm assuming you're happy. I mean, nobody, nobody's unhappy getting prizes, but what's their significance for you? Well, you're right. I did spend a long time on the book. I, it's probably more than 10 years, but 10 sounded like a nice round number. So I said it was 10 years or more. Um, well, it's wonderful to be recognized. You know, um, it's, it's a validation uh, of the work that I did. Um, and, uh, and some of these, these prizes are um, especially meaningful to me because they're awarded by other historians. And so they're from my peers. And that, that means a lot. All good historians, especially uh, prize-winning historians like you, their work is not just historical. It refers very much to the present. And history, of course, never dies. It's always there. Um, you've done a lot of writing on uh, immigration, uh, contemporary immigration for the Wall Street, uh, for the Washington Post, the New York Times, lots of interesting op-eds. What do you think this book teaches us about the immigration question? I mean, I'm not sure if there's a Chinese question today, but there's certainly an immigration question. What wisdom are you bringing to this horribly complicated and nasty debate that Americans seem to perpetually have about who to allow into the country? Well, I think there is a Chinese question today. I think there's renewed animosity and suspicion of Chinese some of it stoked by a former president about about the virus. Yeah. But even as the virus has waned, um, attacks and harassment and violence against Asian Americans has not seen a decline. It's gotten worse. So I, I think these all tap into contemporary anxieties, not just about the virus, but about competition with China. Um, so it always goes back to China um, and... Uh, the competitive uh, view of American business towards China's rise in the global economy. Well, I don't take a side in that fight. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, um, global trade and the global economy should not have to be a zero-sum game. Um, and there are many areas where I think China and the United States have both a competitive and cooperative or interdependent relationship. It's very hard to just flip it into an adversarial relationship, but I think both the American and Chinese leadership seem uh, determined to do that. So that always puts a bullseye on the back of Chinese and other Asian Americans in this country, because when the United States, you know, starts saying things that China is our adversary, you know, people see... People like me, who's an, I'm born in America, I'm an American citizen, but they think I should go back to where I came from. So uh, this, is, this is an ongoing problem. But what I hope my book can do as people think about these problems is to understand that racism is a political project. I don't believe it's something inbred in human nature. I think there, there's, you know, there, there are human behaviors that may be suspicious of outsiders or, 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 you know, prone to prejudices. But racism as an ideology that of othering a whole, a whole groups of other people—that's a political project. And I think what my book shows is how that political project 
was developed in the 19th century. And the reason I say that's my main, I hope is my main takeaway is, is because if we see it's, it's a political project, then we can do something about it, mm. right? We can, we can change our politics. We're not destined to be yoked to bad politics. God help us, we need to have better we politics. We certainly do. We don't want history, well, as you suggest, history is repeating itself in an odd way. And, and, and you're absolutely right, of course, the Chinese question hasn't gone away. It's just had, it's been wrapped in a different way. I wonder if also in an odd way, when it comes to California, history is repeating itself. In Silicon Valley now, there are more and more Chinese entrepreneurs, large amounts of uh, tech workers coming from East Asia, particularly China. Are there comparisons between what's happening now in the Bay Area and the gold rush of cryptocurrency and AI and what happened in the middle of the 19th century? Well, I, I think it's uh, maybe only a, a loose connection can be made. I mean, in general, migration streams tend to find niches. Um, people tend to come from uh, one area or, or even one uh, economic specialization and they, and they fill a certain one abroad. So, um, so what you see now going on in Silicon Valley, you know, 10 years ago, you saw um, the H-1B visa program being uh, used by employers in software writing, right, uh, to bring over South Asians, right? Uh, and they lived in a kind of servitude. You know, they worked for less pay. They were not allowed to change their job. If they brought a spouse, the spouse couldn't work. You know, it was very terrible conditions uh, for those computer workers. Um, and in the same way that uh, certain, you know, maybe lesser skilled industries or, or other skilled industries even rely on certain migration streams. You know, um, the Philippines has long been an exporter of nurses um, and other medical uh, professionals uh, to the United States. Certainly not the only one. But in the 1960s, when there was a huge uh, growth in uh, the numbers of hospitals and healthcare, right, in the 60s uh, during the Johnson administration, a lot of new hospitals were built. Um, there was a real, there was a nursing shortage, and and it was filled by nurses trained in the Philippines who had a history under colonial occupation by the United States, right, of, of being trained in American nursing methods. So the idea that certain nationality groups or ethnic groups are uh, a kind of um, you know go towards certain occupations or certain industries that's that's a you will see that pattern across the board in different industries, different peoples. Um, I think the gold rush is a little different because everybody went to the gold rush. Yeah, it was a scramble from all over the world, and it doesn't it doesn't get really sorted out uh, until later. Well, history never dies. You've made it particularly interesting and important in the Chinese question. Congratulations, May. I wish I could see you, but at least I can hear you. I'm going yes, to so uh, go and watch Chaplin's The Gold Rush, his 1925 movie, uh, having had this conversation. I'd be curious to see. I, I, I think I've seen the film in the past, how, if any way, he represents or misrepresents Chinese workers. What else 
would you suggest people read in addition or watch in addition to your book, The Chinese Question? What, what are you enjoying these days? Uh, wow. Um, I'm drawing a blank. I think Chaplin's a good place to start. Um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of films about the American West. Um, you know, Deadwood is an interesting series. It's about a gold mining town in South Dakota. Mm. And there's a Chinese character in the, in the series who is, uh, I think it's a very racist portrayal, but it's an interesting one, you know, because the guy is, um, he's fiercely independent and they can't really, they can't really control him or tell him what to do. Um, Anything but, but a coolie, in other words. Not a coolie, but, but he's, but he's bad because he's the one, if, if you kill somebody, you bring him the dead body and he will get rid of it for you. So he's an unsavory character, right. but he's definitely not a coolie. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good one to watch. Any books? What are you reading these days? What are you enjoying? Um, what am I reading? I'm reading. Um, I'm reading uh, two books about uh, Taiwan. One is a memoir by Hua Xu, who is a writer um, at the New Yorker, and he just he just published a book. A family memoir. His family came from Taiwan, um, and he grew up in Cupertino, which is speaking of Silicon mm. Valley. Cupertino before it was before Apple got off the ground. And there were real apples uh, there, right? And then I'm reading another book called. Um, uh, it's about the great migration of people from the mainland to Taiwan under Chiang Kai-shek after the Chinese Revolution. Um, and it's called the Great Exodus. Uh, so that's also about you know what happens in Taiwan when you have a million newcomers, uh, all middle class and upper class Chinese from Shanghai and elsewhere, arrive in Taiwan. Excellent. Well, thank you.